Hey everybody, good to see all of you. Glad you're here. Those of you who are online, glad to see you too. If this is your first time here, or even if you've been here before, welcome to Thrive Church. My name is David. I'm going to be talking about the book here for the next 30 minutes or so. But before I do that, I need to draw your attention to a couple things. First of all, can you believe that Lent starts on Wednesday? Like, didn't we just do Christmas, right? My goodness, all of a sudden we're talking about Lent. And um, <laughs> there are a couple things. First of all, um, Lent starts with Ash Wednesday, which is the 2nd of March, and it's coming up. So this Wednesday at Thrive Space at um, uh, 81st and Aspen, we're going to do an Ash Wednesday gathering. So come on out if you're interested in doing that. We're going to do some worship and um, just kind of prepare ourselves for the Lenten season. And uh, so there's that coming up. Hopefully you've seen some of that. So 630 uh, Thrive Space on Wednesday the 2nd is coming up. The other thing that um, that we're going to do, typically speaking, um, for Lent, you give something up, right? Um, Some people give up coffee, heaven forbid, or chocolate, or whatever. Um, different things that they, they give up. I personally give up my New Year's resolutions. It just is really easy for me and just how I roll. Um, but as, a, as, the, um, as the church goes, uh, we've decided um, that for the Lenten season, we're going to be suspending live stream. Now, there's a couple of reasons for this. Um, first, yeah, what? You know, um, there's a couple of reasons for this. First of all, we'd really love for people who are at home to make their way to church to, to be here with us because we, we miss people in community. Um, the second thing is we've got some personnel things that are going on in the background, and it's like a big Rubik's Cube. And so we thought, let's just go ahead for the Lenten season. We're going to give up live stream. Now, that doesn't mean that there's no video, okay? But if, um, uh, you know, you want Sunday morning... Um, we'd really prefer that that you be here. Um, so stay tuned. There's more details coming out about that, but we would love for people to come and join us here. And then um, uh, we'll see how things go later on down the road. But the, the video of the service will be available later. It just won't be on Sunday morning, okay? So keep that in mind. Just want to make you aware of those two things. If you have questions or comments, you can email Dan Farkas at dan at thrivedulsa.com. I'm just kidding. No. <laughs> Sorry, buddy. I love you. <laughs> no, either one of us would be happy to chat with you about that. Anyway, so that's coming up. All right. Um, so we're, I'm wrapping up the series that we're doing on, on the Bible. And it's on the Bible, not just from the Bible. Uh, hopefully every time that you come to Thrive Church, you're going to get some of God's word. But I thought that it would be appropriate to talk about our approach to God's word, just so that you have an idea of kind of what's going on underneath the hood, so to speak. And um, <clears throat> I think, though, that I've kind of misnamed the series. I, should, I shouldn't have called it the book. I should have called it the library, because to me, the Bible is a library. It's different authors writing different books to different audiences, but I just didn't want it to be confusing, so I just called it the book, okay? So that's where we're going. And my attempt is to show just how I approach um, the Bible when I'm studying, when I'm teaching, when I'm preaching. And, and a lot of you might recognize some of this stuff um, because I, I talk about it periodically. It's just I've never put it in one place. And this was the opportunity to do that. And I thought, oh, this might be fun. Been wanting to do this series for a long time. And so uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about 
um, translations of the Bible and just kind of my thoughts on on the translations that are available and, and the ones that you know are worth your your time depending on what your circumstances are. And then we also talked about the topic of inerrancy, which seems to be a hot button for a lot of evangelicals around around the United States, and you just needed to understand kind of what my thought was on that. Um, last week, we talked about the development of the New Testament and other historically related um, books. And uh, I got a lot of comments from people. I think um, people enjoyed that, that, you know, when you open the text, there is a long history there. And there is a lot of discussion and a lot of debate. And so out of those first two weeks, my hope is that when you open the Bible, you can, that you'll have some confidence in it right? That the Holy Spirit that inspired the writing of the word was also the same Holy Spirit that inspired the compiling of the word. And that when you open it, you know that God's going to speak to you through that and you can have that confidence. And today, our topic, in my mind, is crucial to our over, uh, uh, overall understanding of the Bible, and that's context. A lot of you have heard me talk about this. This is a big deal for me. I, context, in my view, is everything. Um, <laughs> It's everything. You have to understand the context in which things are, are written. And uh, there's a, a professor, uh, Dan and I both have um, had contact with, and he makes this comment, a text without a context is simply a pretext. And I don't know about you, but you can get the Bible to say a whole lot of weird stuff when you just pull things out of, out of context. And <clears throat> what I want to do today is I want to walk through the th- uh, three um, contexts that I almost always try to deal with uh, or consider when I'm doing this. So um, those three uh, contexts, very simply, and we're going to walk through each one of them, is that the Bible has a historical context, it has a cultural context, and it has a literary context. Now, um, I think, I think all of you, these things are, are important, and whenever you read the Bible, you need to keep these things in mind. And I think we ignore those contexts at our theological peril. I really do. Um, and sometimes, uh, you know, we end up with these goofy doctrines and beliefs if we don't understand how this stuff kind of fits together. And the presentation today, I, my attempt here is not to be exhaustive. I just want to introduce you to some of these ideas, okay? Because, again, I don't want to bore you with academics. That's, that's not why you're here. You're not here for a college class. Um, and it's, frankly, a whole lot easier to apply um, these, these ideas of context to the Scripture passages rather than going to the scripture and finding examples for them, okay? It's, it's a whole lot easier when, you're, when you've got a passage in front of you and you begin to, to take a look at this stuff through these various lenses, and that's the best way to think about it, um, than it is to go, okay, well, here are my lenses. Let me give you examples of it, okay? But I, I have some, and I think this might be interesting for you. So I do want you to think of these things as lenses to view the Bible to help us understand And they may or may not help us interpret what the passage says, but they almost always add some type of texture to the the richness of the word. And so keep that in mind. Now, hopefully, they will help you interpret them. When you read the text, the Bible ought to be saying something to you because we believe that God is speaking through his word, right? And and so we want to, to take that into account, and we'll get... 
uh, into that more as we go along. Because I think that the thing that I, I'm constantly aware of is the Bible was not written in a vacuum. It wasn't some kind of sterile environment. There were real things that were going on. There were real influences. Yes, the Holy Spirit inspired it, but there's still other things that are happening, much like the world today. When you read certain things, there are influences on that. There are things going on in society that we that influence the way we think about things and we may not even be aware of it, so too um, the ancient, ancient Christians, right? So if the Bible isn't um, written in a vacuum, we shouldn't read it in a vacuum either. It is a connected book. It's connected to time, it's connected to location, and it's connected to people. It's a very uh, alive sort of book. So let's start talking about some context. The first one is historical context. And I think this is the easiest one because most of us have taken some type of history class. We get it. There's a, there's a history. There's a past to things. And there are documents that were produced uh, in history, and we can still access them, and I'm glad that we can. Constitution, anyone? You know, it's a good idea that we've got some of these things written down. So, uh, and historically, it's, it's easier to find because there are, there are people who are interested in this and they write about it and, and, and we can find um, uh, evidence for the things that we're reading about. <clears throat> Several years ago, there were some... <laughs> okay, I'm going to be a little mean. There were some Danish Bible scholars. <clears throat> scholars. That doubted that King David and the... Jewish monarchy ever existed. They um, believed that it was myth very much like King Arthur. And uh, what they suggested was there's no evidence to the Davidic monarchy outside of the Old Testament, which is really interesting. <clears throat> and they wrote papers on it, and they, I'm sure they got tenured positions in their universities and all that kind of stuff. Um, and they made a lot of money on this. Well, then, um, a few years ago, something happened. It was really quite interesting. Because there is constant archaeology that's going on within, uh, within Israel and the surrounding areas. And there's a city called Dan, no relation to our worship leader. There's a, a city called Dan, and um, they found an ancient commemorative obelisk, um, what's called a shtela. In, in fact, you can go look it up. It's called the, the Stella of, of Dan, of Tel Dan, uh, which is a big hill. And from what I understand of the story is that they uncovered this um, stone or whatever it was, and as they were turning it over, the archaeologist in charge, a Jewish man, said, oh my God, there's an inscription. That's a big deal for ancient archaeology is to have some type of inscription. And on the inscription, it mentions... Um, a family called the Amrides, which is an Old Testament dynasty that came out of King David's family. You can read about it in, uh, uh, I think it's Second Chronicles, if I remember right. <clears throat> I wonder how Danish scholars like their eggs, like especially when it's on their face. I mean, it really kind of slapped them up one side. 
to say, wait a second, you know, you're, you're suggesting this, but no, there is. There's plenty of evidence out there, historical archaeological evidence. By the way, this is what it looks like. That's a um, piece of the um, Stella at Tel Dan. Um, and no, I can't read it. <laughs> it's a, no thanks. Um, uh, and, but you can, you can go look it up. It's, it's there. It's really good. So what I want to do is I, I want to understand this historical um, uh, piece of the puzzle. But when we talk about biblical scholarship, I, I think we need to go to the Word. And so I'm um, going to look at Jeremiah chapter 29, verse 11. This is excellent refrigerator magnet theology. Okay, This is something that you put a bumper sticker on your car. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you hope and a future. How many of you have heard this? How many of you have claimed this in Jesus' name, right? Yes, absolutely. And, and, and you should, because God does speak to us. But that verse isn't necessarily written to you first. There was somebody in history that really needed to hear it as well. And a um, couple of things for you to keep in mind. Where did this verse come from? What were the circumstances around it? What's the history behind this passage? Well, we know that Jeremiah prophesied during Israel's conflict with Babylon. So if you can imagine a map of the Middle East, you know where Israel is, roughly. It's right there near the Mediterranean. But if you go north and slightly east, you come to what is modern-day Iraq. Been in the news a lot. That was ancient Babylon. And the Babylonians were notoriously brutal. Uh, They had a a policy of assimilation. Some of you have heard me say this before. It's like Star Trek's Borg. You will be assimilated. And you were. They would take over a particular area, and they would grab a whole bunch of people from that area and then move them to another part of the empire. Which, by the way, strategically is brilliant because you take people away from their homes and they are now unsettled. We've seen this, right? You put them in another part of the empire to assimilate them into your culture so they can't necessarily have only their own culture in their own land. It's a brilliant strategy. It's also really brutal, right? I mean, it's hard on a group of people. And and Jeremiah is prophesying to Israel during a conflict with Babylon. In fact, Jeremiah is called the weeping prophet because he witnessed the sack of the city of Jerusalem, of the capital, and the destruction of the temple. The one that Solomon built. Wiped out completely. 586 BC, by the way. And then he watched his people forced into exile. This is Jeremiah's circumstances. And the word of the Lord came upon him, and he began to speak to the people of Israel who were in exile. Let me read you a little bit. Previous verse. This is verses 4 through 6. This is what the Lord, um, what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says to all those I carried into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Wait a second. The Babylonians didn't do this. God did. This is what God is saying here. And then he says to them, build houses and settle down, because you're going to be there a while. Plant gardens and eat what they produce. Marry and have sons and daughters, and it goes on and on and on. 
And he tells them that you're in exile for a reason. And you may not be enjoying this, but then go back. Know that I have plans for you, plans to actually prosper you. If you're in exile, how important are those words to you? Now, don't get me wrong. I like seeing those on on refrigerators. I really do. Remind me, if you're talking about a people group completely overrun, transported to a different part of the world, and God tells them, it's okay. I want you to be there for a while. Now, interestingly enough, historically speaking, there was a community of Jewish scholars, and they produced um, a particular version of the Old Testament called the Babylonian Codex. It is still used today. And it's a wonderful document that the Jewish people have because of that group of Babylonian Jewish scholars. So sometimes what seems to be horrible is also God being redemptive. We just don't see it that way because we don't see the bigger picture to it. Now, I'm not saying that all tragedy is like that. I'm not saying that, you know, God causes all this stuff. No, 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 no. But God is always redemptive. Always. And he does have plans for you, plans to prosper you and not to harm you, to give you a future and to give you a hope. And I think for me is that when I understand the historical context, then it's easier for me to assimilate into my own thinking. Well, my circumstances certainly aren't as bad as that. But if he has plans for them, that's the extreme that I know he has plans for me, and I can have a certain amount of confidence in that. And you can have some too. I, I think that, you know, the ancient Israel felt lost and unclear and anxious, and God gave them this comfort, a reminder, a hope, and, and we can have that too. And so, really, this verse isn't written to you per se, but you can appreciate it, and you can assimilate it into your own thinking. And what's more is that this is the character of the God that you serve. That regardless of the negative circumstances that you're going through, regardless of your foolishness, ultimately there is a God of redemption who is behind all of it who's saying, yep, I still love you. This is going somewhere. Hang with me. Every time. Now, do you see how a historical context begins to reframe the passage? It begins to add some texture and some depth to it. And I think offers a certain amount of force behind it. Not just for those ancient people, but for us as well. Because I do think it shows the the nature and character of God. Okay, next context is cultural context. Now, this one's a little more uh, difficult. um, Because there are certain things that we just don't know. And we have to um, dig a little bit deeper. And this is why you'll often hear me say that every time that we open the Bible, we're tourists. There are customs that are going on that we don't necessarily know. So if we got on a plane and we went to somewhere in Africa, there's a very good chance that um, there would be customs you wouldn't know about. I'll give you an example of this. When I was in college, I studied the Japanese language. And um, when I was in college, it was very uh, comfortable for me to uh, just sit with my legs crossed, you know, with my kind of my foot up like this. What I didn't know in Japan to show the bottom of your foot was insulting. And so my professor very gently came over and removed my foot. 
this little Japanese woman named Miho, and I would do anything for her. I loved her an awful lot. <clears throat> but there were several of those things. Um, I once put my foot in my mouth and said something that I shouldn't in Japanese and had to apologize to her three times publicly. That was fun. <laughs> but again, that was a custom, right? There were some customs. And so it is every time we open up the text. There are customs that are going on that are part of the culture that we may or may not understand. And so we always have to leave room for that. <clears throat> so it's a little more difficult, but keep that in mind. Um, culture and customs uh, um, uh, plays a huge role, I think, in the Bible. And frankly, it's often the, the very source of sticking points, because there's sticking points in the Bible. Did you know that? And people today still argue about them. Um, I've used this in the past, um, but I think it's an excellent illustration. If you've got uh, a Bible and you want to look at it, otherwise it's up here. It's Matthew chapter 4. Um, verses 18 through 20. As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, this is early on in, in, in this gospel, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, which I always wondered, how do you get Peter out of Simon? I don't know. Um, Simon called Peter and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, Jesus said, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. And it always bothered me why they left their nets. That was just odd. In Mark's gospel, as I recall, he not only calls Peter and Andrew, but also James and John, the sons of Zebedee, and Zebedee's sitting in the boat. And his, his, two, his two sons, who he relies on for a livelihood, drop the nets and they go follow Jesus. And it's just really odd. And I remember Stephen Curtis Chapman wrote a song about it called For the Sake of the Call. And there's this kind of this spiritual thing that's going on. They just heard the call of God. And, you know, all due respect to Stephen Curtis Chapman, I'm not sure it's a spiritual thing. I think it's a cultural thing. Let me see if I can explain this a little bit. Because this is Jewish culture on full display. And I think that it provides some of the missing links. At the time, the highest calling for a Jewish male was to be a rabbi, a Bible teacher. And... Every Jewish male studied Torah, okay, the law, the, the Jewish Old Testament, the scriptures, from age two of five to about age 13. In fact, um, in most cases, they would have the entire uh, Pentateuch, first five of the books, books of the Bible, completely memorized uh, by the time they were 13. Five big books. Have you read the book of Numbers? Holy smokes, that's an awful lot to memorize. But they would, and that was part of the discipline of learning, of learning Torah. <clears throat> and at 13, those who washed out, who didn't seem to have aptitude for scholarly learning, um, they would then, then be returned, more or less, to their, their families to learn a trade. Now I'm oversimplifying a little bit, but, but you need to understand how this process worked. Those who did have aptitude were, would be um, apprenticed, not necessarily to um, a trade, but to a rabbi. And so they would continue on with their studying. And there's a whole um, uh, series or sequence of things that they would have to follow until they were 18 or 21. I can't remember which. So when Peter and Andrew and James and John are out fishing, you know they washed out. 
They would not have been there working the nets had they been uh, or had they shown the aptitude that they needed to go be apprenticed to a rabbi. Now, some estimates uh, suggest that John um, was about 13 years old when he started following Jesus. And he washed out. Yeah, John the Beloved. Yeah, the one who wrote the gospel and Revelation. That one washed out of Bible school. Isn't that interesting? And so when Jesus walks up, and Jesus is a, is a rabbi, and he's teaching, and he's, you know, he's not well-known, but he's known a little bit, and he walks up to the boat, and he says, come follow me, the dads of those boys are like, go, this is your opportunity. We didn't get this chance because we washed out, but you have an opportunity to, to occupy some of the highest, most respected positions in all of Israel. And here we are in Galilee, which, by the way, was backwoods, redneck kind of country. This wasn't the Ivy Leagues. Jesus didn't go to the Ivy Leagues. He went, didn't go to Jerusalem. He stayed in his own hometown, and he found people that he thought, or he believed, or the Father told him, might be good disciples for him. And so when he says that, the father's like, yeah, go. Drop the nets. Go do this thing. Was it spiritual? Sure. But I think it's more cultural. This was a big deal. This was an opportunity for these boys to have something very different than being fishermen. And this is who Jesus chose. Rednecks, blue collar, worked with their hands. change the world. You and I are here because of some fishermen. We're in this church today because of some some hardworking blue-collar types. We're called by God. And if Jesus did that, imagine what you could do with the presence and power of the Holy Spirit like they had. Do you see how culture reframes the passage? Because now it has a little more depth. It has a little more texture to it. And you're like, oh, well, if he did that with them, what about me? What about you? Finally, we have what's called literary context. Historical, cultural. Now we have literary this is the one I think it's overlooked the most in many respects. Um, and I think it's because we lump everything into one particular book and we call it the, the Bible, and you know, I, I still think it's a library. But when you lump everything together, the tendency is to, to try to read it all the same, which I think gets us into trouble, Okay. And I've heard other people say that um, all of the, the Bible is, is equal in inspiration and equal in, in value, but not equal in weight. And I'm like, okay, I understand that, and I probably actually agree with it, but I think it really has more to do with the type of literature that you're reading. Let, let me explain. I think, I think this might be, might be helpful. So let me give you a verse. Here's the verse. He will cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. So is God a chicken? 
course not. We know that that's not true. There's a metaphor that's going on here. This is Psalm 91, verse 5. This is poetry. And we read poetry um, with metaphor. And we understand that the metaphor is actually telling us something not about the physical appearance or the physical characteristics of God, but rather his character and his nature. This is like that, right? This is what's, what's going on in the text, and we understand that because that's the way we, re- we read poetry. And, it, and occasionally, we need a picture of God in something else in order to understand him. So when we watch a chicken with its chicks, a hen with its chicks, and we see how they're cared for, we can say, oh, the God who created that might be like that. They might be reflecting something of his character. And so we understand poetry and we understand metaphor. Here's another one. This is good. And out of the smoke, locusts came down on the earth and were given power like that of the scorpions of the earth. Oh, this is exciting. They were told not to harm the grass of the earth or any plant or tree. I'm I'm sure that the environmentalists love this. But only those people who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. They were not allowed to kill them, but only to torture them. Yay. And the agony they suffered was like that of the sting of a scorpion when it strikes. I kid you not, I actually saw an interpretation of this passage that suggested that the locusts, like scorpions, were actually helicopters. Military helicopters. Isn't that interesting? What was this guy smoking? That's what I want to know. It's like, wow, what what on earth caused that? Or what you know, kind of mixed drink, or I don't know. This is actually Revelation chapter 9. And the type of literature is called apocalyptic literature. You can see that in here. And let me just tell you that apocalyptic literature in general is chock full of symbolism. This is an ancient human being, John, the one we just talked about, who is trying to describe a vision of the future that he's having. Now, whether it's a helicopter or not, I don't know. But can you imagine being an ancient person trying to put into words something like a helicopter? Well, it flies like locusts. But it has something, you know, really deadly about it. The sting of it. So how else are you going to say that? You're going to use terms and words that you understand, not necessarily as metaphor, but as symbols. So I'm using this to describe that. I don't know what what it's for. There's probably something else in here. The point that I'm trying to make is you don't read apocalyptic literature like you read poetry. You have something of a filter in your mind, and you're like, oh, okay, this isn't literal, right? The same thing is true is that you do not read a novel like you do a textbook. You don't read your cookbook like you do your newspaper. Are you understanding what I'm saying? There are genres of literature, and the genre of the literature tells us how to read it. And when you try to give all of it the same weight and the same value and the same understanding, you're probably going to run into some problems. 
So you have to look at the literature to help you understand what's going on. <clears throat> and so the scene that we have here is terrifying. But if you keep reading in the book of Revelation and you get to chapter 21 and chapter 22, there's a whole lot of hope there. But you've got to get through the apocalyptic literature. You've got to get through the storyline in order to get to the hope. And there's a reason for that. That's what the author had in mind. And again, do you see how understanding literary context reframes the passage? And again, I think it shows us the nature and character of God if we, if we keep going. We read through this. Now, one of the things that I, I'm always a little... No, one of the things I'm cognizant of whenever I try to teach is that I don't personally believe that every um, Christian has to be a Bible scholar in order to understand the Word. I don't think that at all. <clears throat> we do have Holy Spirit to guide us. And we ought to access that regularly. I think that's important. But the further away that we get from the actual events in time and, frankly, geography, we need to account for things like history and culture and, um, and literature. D does this make sense? Because 2,000 years ago is very different than today. And we can't necessarily look at it only with a, uh, a lens that is 21st century. We have to actually understand what was being written then and what was it communicating to them at that moment in time, and then maybe we can extrapolate what it might mean for us. Otherwise, we run the risk of appropriating things inappropriately. We run that risk of, of making some applications that may not have been the original intent. So what I want to do is I want to leave you with two pieces of advice when you read your Bible. And that's all it is. And my advice is worth exactly what you pay for. Okay? So I, this is just advice. And I, I, think, I think these are important. And I, I think they'll have some value to you. And the first one is this, is that always leave room. When you're reading a Bible and, uh, passage and you're learning something, always leave room. For God to teach you something new or something more. I've talked to a lot of you about this from time to time, and I've, I've heard you say this. But as you get older, and as you have more experience with the Bible, you read it differently. Because you're different. The text is the same, the message is the same, but your understanding of the world, your worldview, and your relationship with God has grown, hopefully. And because of that, you will find passages that you've read a dozen times, and all of a sudden something jumps out at you, and you sit there and you go, why haven't I seen this before? And really, it might be Holy Spirit illuminating something to you because you're ready for it. Because you've grown to that point in that experience. So always leave room for something new or something more. So there's a couple of categories that I use. You can borrow these. Uh, I don't know where I got them, but uh, I think they're helpful. But there are certain things that I read and learn that for me are what I call blood issues. These are non-negotiables. Then I have other ones that are pen issues. Yeah, I'm pretty sure about those. And then I have some that are pencil issues. Like, I'm okay with an eraser. 
Occasionally I find one that are erasable ink, but most of the time the three categories are all that I really need. Let me give you an example. A blood issue for me is the resurrection of Jesus. If Jesus wasn't divine and he wasn't uh, human, uh, human at the same time and he didn't resurrect, we don't have a faith. If for some strange reason there was, we were able to find the bones of Jesus and we were to somehow be able to DNA authenticate them, I don't know how you do that, but if that were happened, we don't have a faith anymore. The faith is not resting on the teachings of Jesus the faith that we have is on the resurrection of Jesus that changed everything, that one day we too will be like him. And without that, there's no reason for it. That's a blood issue for me. That's a hill I'm going to die on, the resurrection of Jesus. A pen issue, a little bit different. My pen issue is free will. That's pretty much an ink issue for me. Is that I think that God gave us free will and he doesn't violate our free will. And I think half the, the problems that we have are people exercising their free will in an ungodly way. Another one would be um, women in ministry. There are denominations that are fighting over this one. Do we ordain women? Oh, man. Church of God, we've always ordained women. I settled that issue a long time ago. And I'll tell you, when I went to seminary... I didn't believe that. I thought it was um, what we call complementarian, which it was male leadership only, and um, you know, women couldn't have authority over men, whatever that means, that kind of a thing, until I went to seminary and I started seeing women preachers who were gifted. And I realized if I had a woman in my congregation who had teaching gifts and I didn't develop them, that was a sin issue on my part, not on theirs. That's a pen issue for me. Now, I reserve the right for God to change my mind on that, but when I look in the text and I see how God elevated the status of women, how Jesus interacted with them, <laughs> that is a voice the church desperately needs to hear. Well, that one got me fired up, didn't it? Whew. Where that came from? Thinking that was a blood issue. Uh-uh. Then we have, we have um, pencil issues. And a great example of this is the one we talked about a couple of weeks ago. It's just translations of the Bible. That's a pencil issue for me. I just want you to read it. <laughs> that's, that's what I want because I trust that Holy Spirit's going to talk to you through the word. So if you use a different translation than I use, hey, cool, that's fine. And it might be fun to actually compare those two translations. I'm great with that. Pencil issue. I use the NIV when I preach. I have my reasons for it. I've outlined them before. You don't have to do that. But I will say this. If you're following along in the book and you're reading from a different translation, you, you might get caught up on some of, that, uh, some of that stuff. That's okay. I don't mind. Again, pencil issue for me. Does this make sense? What hills are you willing to die on? And you can't die on all of them. Oh, my gosh. Then we're fighting about everything. Okay, enough about that. Here's the other piece of advice. So, first of all, leave room for God to teach you something new or something more. You're going to have some blood issues, but they're few and far between. Here's the second one. Always, always invite Holy Spirit to teach you what He wants you to know. Every time you crack open the Word, that is your invitation to say, Oh God, what's cooking today? What is it in here that you want me to see? And reading scripture in the presence of God is always richer and more meaningful. 
always. It isn't to, to, to guilt you into anything. That's ultimately just to have you realize that if you're just reading for the sake of reading, you're settling for something far less than what God intended. One thing that you can try is read until something resonates with you. And some of you are like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be reading a long time. Yeah, get out of numbers. <laughs> read a different book of the Bible, maybe. But read something until it, it resonates with you. I think that's good. I think I mentioned this before, but lately God has been giving me passages as I'm just doing my journaling. <clears throat> and I'll write it down, and I'm like, oh, now i got to go look that up. Because it's never the verse that he gives me. It's always like seven or eight verses ahead of it, or seven or eight verses, and i got to read the whole thing. But you know what? Every time I read it, I'm like, oh, man, I totally needed that. God, I needed that. And, I, and he knows those things. And he, he gives that, that stuff to us from time to time. You just have to be sensitive. And you've you got to work with it. But reading the scripture in his presence is always richer and always more meaningful. Now, I hope that this series has been useful for you. And, and hopefully it gives you insight into kind of how I approach the text every time. Um, as we go into Lent, uh, I think we're going to be um, reading about the, the story to the cross out of the book of John. I'm pretty sure that's what we're going to do. Um, Dan and I have been talking about this. And uh, you will see some of these things in action there. Uh, you will see some of these um, different contexts bubble up to the surface as we go through um, that particular story. But the other, the other thing, too, is that not only it's useful, I hope that ultimately it gives you confidence in the library, the library that is the Bible, that God speaks to his people back then and he speaks to his people today, and ultimately it is just another avenue for you to get to know your Heavenly Father who loves you. And it's trustworthy. Now, whether you have a Bible reading plan, hey, that's cool or whether you just do the thing you're not supposed to do and crack open the Bible and just start reading. Which, by the way, I know that you're not supposed to do that, but it totally works sometimes. <laughs> it just really does. And sometimes you, you, you get something that you really need it. That's okay. But I hope that there's some confidence that you have in this, this library of books that God has made available to his people. Let's pray. Lord, <clears throat> once again, I just am in awe of how much you really love us. You give us this book. It's ancient. It's weird. There's all kinds of stuff in it that we don't understand, and yet you have spoken to your people through it for centuries. And we're in a long line of that. And so my prayer is that every person who calls Thrive Church home, that when they when they open their Bible, they would see it and experience it as an opportunity to connect with you. Not just history, not just words on a page, not even something encouraging, but rather that the God of the universe who created them and loves them is trying to speak to them through the words of these ancient people. And that the character and nature of God is on full display. But the beautiful part of it is that you're not done yet. That you have called each one of us 
to continue that story that, Lord, that we get to be part of your story that you're telling. And that the things that happened in the past still happen today because you are the same. And you have things that you want not only to do for us, but also to do through us and inside of us. And Lord, we receive that in Jesus' name. Thank you for that invitation. And so as we go this week, my prayer deeply is that each person be able to slow down to hear your voice so that they can respond to you, whether they're hearing from you directly or if they're hearing you through the words of another or through the word that you provided, doesn't matter. Or that you are the focus of that attention. Be a relationship sort of thing. And I pray too, Lord, that if any person is, is really wrestling with anything going on right now, if there's just something deep in their heart, that they would find a passage through your spirit that would speak to them. God, speak to us. We're listening. want to hear you so that we can really follow you. And I thank you in advance for all that you're going to do in Jesus' name. Amen.